Lord, we lift up this time to you, and uh, as we just consider uh, everything that happened uh, this week, um, over 2,000 years ago, uh, today, God, that you entered into Jerusalem, that uh, the people cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord, but they were looking for a different type of salvation, Lord, and you were a different type of Messiah than they expected. And God, I pray that you would align our hearts with yours today and this week, that we would really try to empathize uh, with you and with the disciples as best as we can as to what you walk through this week. Lord, I pray that as we enter into our message today, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring uh, encouragement. Uh, most of all, Lord, we would understand your heart for us. We would learn something new about you and, and where we stand uh, in your eyes, God. So please bless today's message. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, so I'm not doing a traditional... Um, uh, uh, Palm Sunday message. Okay. We went through Matthew last year. We kind of did a Palm Sunday thing. Not that long ago. If you remember when we were in Matthew chapter 21. So we're going to continue our study, uh, through acts, as I mentioned, acts chapter eight, before we get into the specific passage, if you haven't been with us, obviously we've been going through acts verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now a significant event happened in acts chapter seven. What was that? Stephen was stoned. He was the first martyr in the church. And we can look at that and go, oh my gosh, God, why would you allow that to happen to this man? He was doing exactly what you asked him to do. And then you let him get stoned by these people, by these wicked men. But we see God had a plan and all of that. He actually used the martyrdom of Stephen to multiply his church. And when we look at Acts chapter 8, that's exactly what happens. God used the persecution in the church to multiply the church, to get the church out of Jerusalem, to get him into the region of Judea and all Samaria. Had the persecution not happened, those believers in Jerusalem likely would have stayed put. They likely wouldn't have moved and got out of their comfort zone. And we discussed how God often brings trials into our life to get us out of our comfort zone, ultimately to grow us. Now, we were introduced to a man by the name of Philip. He's the deacon that was referred to in Acts chapter 6. And we kind of go from uh, Stephen's ministry to Philip's ministry because Philip was one of the head honchos preaching the gospel there in Samaria. He was, um, he was very successful. Many people got saved. He's referred to as Philip the evangelist because he has this gift of evangelism and people are just drawn to the gospel when he communicates. Now, we saw Philip in this successful ministry that he started. Many people getting saved in Samaria. But then we were also introduced to this other significant figure in Samaria. Who was that? It was Simon the Sorcerer. Simon the Sorcerer. And what we see in Acts chapter 8 is that Simon the Sorcerer, he professes faith in God. In fact, it says that he believed in the gospel. Not only that, he was baptized. The question will be asked, was Simon actually saved? Because we're going to look at the rest of the text in Acts chapter 8. And what we're going to see Simon the sorcerer attempt to do is he's going to attempt to buy the Holy Spirit. He's going to attempt to purchase the grace of God, if you will. But there's also another significant figure that we'll see in this text. 
And I believe that's what Luke's trying to get across to us. That people are getting saved in the early church. Masses, multitudes, thousands of people on any given day. But are they all actually saved? We'll look at the experience that Simon the sorcerer has in basically attempting to purchase the Holy Spirit. We'll also look at the experience that this Ethiopian eunuch has. And this Ethiopian eunuch, he appears to have sincere faith. He appears to truly believe in the gospel. The title of this teaching, Buying the Gospel versus Believing the Gospel. Buying the gospel versus believing the gospel. And when I say buying the gospel, I'm not talking about like buying a Bible. What this guy is doing, he doesn't understand grace. He doesn't understand the grace of God. Simon the sorcerer is confused about the doctrine of the gospel. And as we look at this man's story and study some early history that I'll talk about a little bit later, it doesn't appear that Simon the sorcerer was actually saved. On the other hand, This Ethiopian eunuch, he has a different type of response. He rejoices in the gospel. There's a sincerity there. There's a genuineness there. And then we look at some of the early history of the Ethiopian eunuch. And history tells us that he shared his faith. He spread his faith. And many people in Ethiopia got saved because of this Ethiopian eunuch. It's one of the scariest things Jesus ever says. In Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. There will be some that think that he's their Lord, that actually call him Lord, but he's not actually their Lord. We'll tackle a lot of these different ideas as we look at this text. In Acts chapter 8, verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem, remember the church spread and uh, left in Judea and Samaria, but the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. Okay. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So they hear the gospel is spreading to Samaria. This confirms the Lord's direction, right? In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, uh, But the, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, to Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is the second part of that outline there that's laid out in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So this was something that the apostles knew was going to happen, but now they're going to Samaria to basically confirm the happening of this that these people in Samaria are actually getting saved so the apostles send Peter and John to confirm this thing now why would Peter and John have to confirm this thing that the gospel is spreading there's probably several reasons one being accountability making sure that they actually had a proper understanding of the gospel but we also see back in Matthew chapter 16 if you want to write this down Matthew chapter 16 verse 19 Jesus had given Peter a special level of authority and he says in Matthew chapter 16 verse 19 and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We see that Peter was really the one that opened up the gospel to be presented to various people groups. First the Jews, 
In Acts chapter 2, it was Peter who first preached. And then we'll see in Acts chapter 10, he's the first one to get the gospel out to the full-on Gentiles. And the person of Cornelius, we'll visit that in a few weeks. Though it was Philip that shared the gospel with the Samaritans, we see that the church sends Peter and John to basically confirm and solidify the ministry that Philip accomplished. We also see something pretty interesting here. Who's Peter with? John, right? And if you recall way back in Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9, John and his brother James wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. He wanted to call down fire and literally burn up and destroy all of the Samaritans. Why? Because they didn't accept Jesus Christ. So now Jesus has John going to minister to the very people that he hated, the very people that he was angry with, the very people that he wanted destroyed because they didn't receive the gospel. We got to be careful. Sometimes the people that we like the least in this world are the people that God will send us to. It's the truth. It's the reality of the scripture and our lives. So John and Peter, they are sent to confirm the ministry of Philip. Look what happens. It's Acts chapter 8, verse 15. Who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the people believed the gospel and were saved, but the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them yet. Okay, the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them yet. We talked about this before. There's basically three operations of the Holy Spirit. And we see this in the Greek. You have the uh, para, P-A-R-A, uh, and that means the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is with the world. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit that is with the world is going to be in you personally. This was a new operation of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit would literally come and indwell in people. But then we have the epi, that E-P-I word, that's the coming upon the Holy Spirit, empowering people to the work of the ministry. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Let me make my point. Point number one, when we believe the gospel, we receive the Spirit. When we believe the gospel, we receive the Spirit. It's not that these Samaritans weren't saved. It's not that uh, Philip's gospel fell short of the real gospel. And because they believed Philip's gospel, it wasn't as powerful as the apostles' gospel. So they weren't actually saved. And uh, Peter and John really had to come to lay hands on them so that they would be saved. No, this is in connection with the Holy Spirit coming upon them. When we believe the gospel, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit literally comes and dwells inside of us. God actually comes and lives inside of us when we truly, sincerely accept the gospel. Jesus told the disciples this. I mentioned it a couple minutes ago. He says in John chapter 14, verse 17, the spirit of truth, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you. That's the para and will be in you. The Holy Spirit, he's going to come inside of you. And we see when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he breathed the Holy Spirit into the apostles. 
That's the first time we see that. It's amazing to me that God actually comes and dwells inside of us. It says this everywhere, all throughout the New Testament. If you want to write this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. It says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? God actually lives inside of us. And there are many things that God does inside of us. Uh, uh, the sanctification process, or He transforms us from the inside out. But another thing that He does that's absolutely crucial is that when He comes and dwells inside of us, He seals us for the day of redemption. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 it says, We're sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. Meaning, when the Spirit comes and lives inside of us, indwells us, we're saved. We're saved. He seals us. And I don't believe that you can lose your salvation when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, when He dwells inside of you. There's no reference in Scripture that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of someone and then leaves them, okay? We see the Holy Spirit coming upon people and then departing, but not indwelling them and then leaving them. Besides, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 28, in John chapter 10, verse 28, He says, no one can pluck you out of my hand. No one can. You're sealed for the day of redemption. If you've truly accepted the Lord, then you're sealed. Your salvation is secure. Now you might ask, what about someone who walks away from their faith? What about someone that's been in the church all their life? They could even be a pastor, a preacher, or an evangelist, and all of a sudden they walk away from their faith. What do I believe? Based on my study of the scriptures, that they were never saved to begin with. Why? Because Jesus tells us this is going to happen. In Matthew chapter 13, he gives us the parable of the wheat and tares. Okay, we studied this last year. But with the parable of the wheat and tares, what's Jesus getting at? If you study this at all, wheat and tares look exactly the same. You can't tell the difference between a wheat and a tear. And remember, he says, okay, um, there, you, we have believers here that are the wheat, and then you have unbelievers who are the tares. And we don't know the difference, and it's not our responsibility as believers to separate the wheat and the tares the reality of it is is that we won't know till the last day till jesus comes back and we'll recognize oh my gosh i thought that person was a believer they looked like it they played the part they came to church they served in the church they even shared some messages maybe they shared their faith all the time but they weren't actually a wheat they weren't actually a true believer some of these scriptures are absolutely terrifying but the reality of it is is God knows who is really saved and who isn't. And we'll get into this a little bit more as we continue in this text, specifically as we talk about Simon the sorcerer. So, John and Peter, they come, they engage with the Samaritans, they lay hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, look what it says back here in verse 16. For as yet had fallen upon none of them. We see that that's the epi word. The Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon them. It hadn't come upon them. It hadn't empowered them yet. Well, now why is this so significant? Why do John and Peter want to make sure the Holy Spirit has come upon these believers? Because the Holy Spirit coming upon us is absolutely crucial for us to be witnesses of Christ. So Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 
right? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. That's the primary function of the Holy Spirit coming upon us in power so that we could have the boldness, so that we could have the courage to preach Christ, not just with our lips, but with the way that we live our lives for the church to continue to spread. It wasn't enough just for them to be saved. They had to have the Spirit come upon them so the gospel could continue to get preached. We also see that the Holy Spirit coming upon us is where we get the spiritual gifts from. Spiritual gifts, whether it's teaching or administration or exhortation, whatever. There's a lot of spiritual gifts, but that's the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals so that they can operate in that gift. And all those gifts are really to bear witness to Christ, give God glory and edify the church body. So it appears that because Peter and John recognized that they did receive the Holy Spirit. It says they received the Holy Spirit, that there was an obvious uh, visual something, evidence that took place here. They likely probably started operating in gifts. We don't know for sure, but there was something visual uh, that Peter and John were able to see to recognize that they had received the Holy Spirit. It could have been something like Acts chapter 2. They were speaking in tongues. Uh, we don't know for sure, but they knew. Peter and John were certain, uh, and Luke tells us that they actually did receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did come upon them. Acts chapter 8, verse 18. And when Simon, uh, that's not Simon, Peter, uh, that's Simon the sorcerer. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. His true colors finally come out, right? Once a sorcerer, always a sorcerer. No, I'm kidding. The reality of it is the gospel could have changed this man. It could have transformed this man. But Simon the sorcerer, as revealed through the text, he didn't want the gospel to change him. He wanted the gospel to put him in a better position so that he could have power, so that he could do the things that Philip was doing. And he could do the things that John and Peter were doing. It wasn't about a salvation thing. It was all about a power thing. He had a power trip. He wanted the power of the Spirit for his own selfish gain. Now, many people use the gospel for their own selfish gain. Many people do it, whether it's to uh, make themselves appear spiritual or it's to fill their pockets, just sow a seed for a thousand dollars, right? People do this stuff all the time and it's so alarming and it honestly, it makes me angry inside. But there's also a reality and a perspective. That Paul had with all of this. And he tells us in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1. Verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. And some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely. Supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love. Knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, 
And we'll rejoice. He's saying, hey, there's some people that are preaching Christ with sincerity of heart. And there are other people that are preaching it with selfish ambition. I'm just happy Christ's name's being preached. I'm just happy people are sharing the gospel. As hard as it is for us to identify with that perspective as Paul does. When someone's speaking the actual truth of the gospel. Not a false gospel. Not a different gospel. But there is something to rejoice about. Even if their motivations are off. We see Simon the sorcerer. He had bad motivations. Acts chapter 8, verse 20. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now, this specific story is where we get... um, uh, the church term simony from. It's literally the term used uh, when people attempt to purchase church positions. Okay, this used to be a big problem in the Catholic church that people would try to purchase a position. Now, I'm not just dogging the Catholic church. It's just a historical fact. People thought that they could purchase a position just as Simon the sorcerer thought that he could purchase the gift of God. But Peter tells us, this is point number two, the gift of God cannot be bought. The gift of God cannot be bought. It cannot be bought. In Acts chapter 2, if you flip over a couple pages, verse 38, says, Then Peter said to them, Acts 2.38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we believe the gospel, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can't be bought, nor can the gospel be bought. By definition, the gospel can't be bought. It's the definition of grace. Grace is unearned, unmerited favor from God. And Paul tells us, if you would, it's Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by faith you have been saved through grace, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By definition, when Paul is defining the gospel, he says you can't earn it. You can't buy it. You simply have to receive it. It's a gift. Do you try to earn God's love? Do you try to earn His grace? Do you try to earn His forgiveness? Do you have this false mentality in your mind that your heavenly Father is just like your earthly Father and you need this affirmation from Him and you think that you need to do something for God to love you more? Guess what? He can't love you any more than He does right now. But we can fall into this. Maybe if I serve a little bit more, maybe if I'm a little more involved, maybe if I read my devotions more, maybe if I pray and worship more, God will love me more. That's not true. we got to understand the difference between two things. God can't love us anymore. But there are times when He can be pleased with us and displeased. And if we're doing those things, we have to have the right motivation. Yes, it's good to read the Bible. Absolutely. It's good to pray. It's good to worship. It's good to do all these things that Jesus tells us to do. But we can't do it from the motivation of, uh, I want God to love me more. To please God, absolutely. Yeah, I want to please God. It's like this with Jude, okay? Now that he's crawling everywhere, he gets into everything. He's constantly ripping up commentaries and Bibles 
and all these different things. I need to come up with a new system. He gets into everything. Anyone that has kids knows what I'm talking about. And when he does this, guess what? I get frustrated with him. You know, he's too young to discipline, but I get frustrated with him and it displeases me. But I don't love him any less. I love him just the same, whether he's ripping out pages in my Bible or he's just being a good little boy, eating his food, whatever the case may be. How much more the love of God. He loves us just the way we are. But it pleases him when we make changes in our lives, when we do the things that he's asking us to do. But our motivation has to be to please God, not to uh, persuade God to love me anymore. Simon the sorcerer, he assumed that the gift of God could be bought, that there's something that he could do to earn it. The gift of God is simply received. Acts chapter 8 verse 21. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore, for this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps he thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Peter reveals to us through the text that Simon the sorcerer's heart is not right with God. This is a crucial statement that Peter makes here. we got to look back. Simon the sorcerer, as I mentioned, he professed faith. The text even says that he believed. Okay, He believed in the gospel. He got baptized. And Philip believed enough that Simon the sorcerer was saved to baptize him. You don't baptize someone unless you're pretty sure that they're saved. You want them to first understand salvation, that they accepted the Lord, and then you would baptize them afterwards. Philip must have been convinced because he baptized Simon the sorcerer. Not only that, he's following Philip around. He's hanging out with the believers in Samaritan. This is a this is a guy that you would see involved, heavily involved in the church. But his heart wasn't right with God. Point number three, salvation is of the heart. Salvation is of the heart. Regardless of what someone appears to be, saved or unsaved, God knows their hearts. And we don't technically know what's in someone's heart. Now, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, he was able to discern what was in this man's heart. And God can give us that gift too. That in certain circumstances, uh, we can discern what's really going on in somebody's heart. But overall, God only knows the heart. It's Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Okay, meaning like we don't even really know everything that's going on in our hearts. It's only God that knows the hearts. He knows who's actually saved and who isn't saved. But when we look at the example of Simon the sorcerer, we see that salvation is more than a profession of faith. It's much more than a profession of faith. Actually, in Romans Chapter 10, verse 9 to 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10. Paul tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not just a profession of faith. It's a belief in the heart. It's literally from my heart of hearts, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. But not only that, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and it's a sincere profession of faith, God literally not just comes, not the, not, he doesn't only come into our hearts, he actually changes our hearts. He gives us a new heart. It's Ezekiel chapter 26. I know I'm giving you a ton of scripture today because it's a long text. We don't have time to flip to everything. If you want on your own time, you can uh, look back at some of these that I'm kind of quoting. In Ezekiel chapter 26, we'll turn here. In Ezekiel chapter 26, Yes, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This was the new covenant, okay, that God is referring to. This is the covenant that he will establish with Israel. And he has established this with Messianic Jews. But the church, because Israel rejected the Messiah for the most part, it says in Romans chapter 11, that they have a spirit of blindness over their eyes, that they're not able to see the truth of Jesus. One day they will, and they'll enter into the same covenant that we've entered into with Jesus Christ. But with this new covenant and accepting the gospel, as we enter into it, God gives us a new heart. He says, he put a new spirit in you. That's the Holy Spirit. He changes our heart from the inside out. This is crucial to our salvation. If you have made a profession of faith and there hasn't been any change of heart. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about that all your desires have completely changed. But if there's not some of that, if there's not a change of heart, I'm afraid for you. When I accepted the Lord, I'll tell you an embarrassing story. Okay, so uh, when I went to Calvary House, I was, uh, if you don't know, I was an extreme, just horrific drug addict. Um, My parents wouldn't let me over at holidays or anymore. It was just, it was really bad. Uh, and so I need, I knew I needed to get help after a few more overdoses. I finally went to this place called Calvary House. I knew I was going to die in my sin if I didn't, but I hadn't accepted the Lord yet. He was doing something in my heart, but I hadn't accepted him. So I used to smoke cigarettes like over a pack a day. It was disgusting habit, not criticizing you if you smoke cigarettes. But for me, I just didn't want to do that anymore. Um, but I was still struggling with this thing. Before I accepted the Lord, I was with this guy. We were cleaning the, the property at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. And this guy's like, hey, I got a cigarette. And he's smoking it. He's like, here, you want half of it? I didn't have any cigarettes. You weren't allowed to smoke cigarettes in Calvary House. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's been like three days. Yeah, give me that half of your smoked cigarette. Okay, that's why I'm saying it's embarrassing. So I put it in my pocket. Okay, I put it in my pocket. And I didn't get a chance. One of the leaders came up. We couldn't smoke. So I went back home. This is a Tuesday. I went back home and I hit it. I'm like, man, I'm going to wait for a good spot to get away and then I'm going to smoke this cigarette. Well, that Wednesday, uh, I hadn't had a chance yet. Um, we go to church. There's an altar call and I, and I end up accepting the Lord that day and something happened to me. There's a change of heart. I, I didn't want that anymore. Like, yeah, the physical side of me, I was addicted to cigarettes, but there's something in me. I didn't want this anymore. I didn't want my old life anymore. I didn't have the same exact desires. Now, that didn't mean that I didn't have any desires to sin whatsoever. But a lot of those desires that I had, they were gone. God changed my heart. Salvation is a heart thing. If there's not a change of heart, at least on some level, then we should wonder if that's a sincere profession of faith that we made. 
See, our life will ultimately reveal what our heart is set on. Just as we see through Simon the sorcerer, if you just read to chapter 13, and that was the end of the story, we'd probably think that Simon the sorcerer was saved. But ultimately, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And the true motives will be revealed. We see that Simon the sorcerer, he had impure motives. More importantly, Peter says, your heart is not right with God. But then Peter speaks to him and he says, hey, I want you to repent and pray to God that you may be forgiven. There must, these must have been tough words to hear. Simon the sorcerer probably thought that he was saved. Now you're telling me I need to pray to God and, and, and I need to repent so that I can be forgiven for this thing? Peter is doing this though out of, out of love for this guy. He's serious, seriously and sincerely concerned about this man's salvation. If he doesn't repent, then I don't know where he's going at the end of this life. There are many that have made a profession of faith, get involved, get plugged in, hang out with Christians, but they haven't truly repented. Meaning, they haven't turned from their old lifestyle and turned to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that the old man doesn't sometimes resurrect himself and we fall back into old habits. But it does mean that there should be a constant, regular turning from this thing and turning to Jesus, whatever that thing may be for you. So Peter, he gives them a sincere warning. You need to repent of this right now. Because we're not promised tomorrow. And repentance is crucial for our salvation as well. As that happens, that thing in our heart changes. It, it leads us to this place of repentance. But we've got to remember, repentance is a gift in this life, not the next. Repentance isn't a gift that we get when we die. It's not. There's no indication in, of, in Scripture that we have the chance to repent when we die. Repentance is a huge gift. I don't think we understand it. You know the angels in heaven marvel at the gospel for many reasons, but for one, they never get a chance to repent. As soon as they sinned against God, they were fallen. No more. They couldn't have communion with God anymore. God forgives us over and over and over again. We have this opportunity to repent that the angels marvel at, but the opportunity only lasts as long as we live. Once life is over, there's no more chance to repent. Peter is speaking hard truth because he wants Simon the sorcerer to repent before it's too late. He says also, he says, you are poisoned with bitterness and bound by iniquity. Verse 23. I don't know how Peter picked up on this other than the fact that he's filled with the Spirit and he's discerning these things. He's pointing out his specific sins. You're struggling with bitterness. You're bound by iniquity. Now, iniquity could be a bunch of things. The word really means rebellion. But the bitterness thing, what's that bitterness rooted in? I believe personally... There was some jealousy going on in Simon the Sorcerer's heart. Why? Because before Philip came on the scene, what happened? They worshipped Simon the Sorcerer as he was from the great God. He, he, he operated in the great power of God. They were like worshipping this guy, praising guy, then this guy. Then Philip comes on the scene, preaches the gospel, does these miracles, and guess what? Simon the Sorcerer, you're, yesterday, you're yesterday's news. We don't care about you anymore. This is the real power of God. They recognize the real power of God through the gospel. So now Simon the Sorcerer, he doesn't have the following that he once did. So he's probably bitter, maybe at Philip, maybe at Jesus, maybe at the apostles. There's jealousy going on in his heart, which led to this place of bitterness. 
text doesn't reveal specifically other than the fact that he has bitterness in his heart. And Peter sees it. Acts chapter 8, verse 24. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. This is evidence that Simon the sorcerer had a sense of conviction, but he's still not getting it. Peter says, you need to pray to God. You need to repent. What do you say? Pray for me. Pray for me. It just shows us that there's a disconnect between Simon the sorcerer and God. If Simon the sorcerer doesn't feel like he can come to God himself, then he doesn't recognize the power of the gospel. He's still caught up in this power trip thing. Well, because Peter and John had all this power and they manifested these miracles, they have the power to forgive me. Pray that God will forgive me. But guess what? Only God can forgive. Only God can forgive us of our sins. Now, yes, we can forgive people that sin against us, but every sin that someone commits isn't just against an individual, it's against God. Every single sin that we commit. So if uh, someone sins against me, I can forgive them. But as far as eternity goes, they're not forgiven from God. Until God forgives them and they need to seek out that forgiveness from God. Now someone might ask, hey, I thought that the Bible says that God gives us the power to forgive and and, and hold people with unforgiveness, whatever the case may be. It's John chapter 20, John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 21 So Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So is this Jesus saying that he's given the apostles the power to forgive on the same level that he is? No, you've got to look at the context. He's sending them out. That's the whole context. Basically what he's saying, if you tell someone, just as Peter's doing, if you tell someone, if they accept Jesus, they are forgiven. If they accept Jesus, they truly are forgiven. But if they reject Jesus, they can't be forgiven. There's no way to be forgiven other than by the blood of the Lamb. So the reality of it is, and the point is that only God can actually forgive Simon the sorcerer He wants Peter basically to do the work for him. Pray for me. But what he's missing is his connection with God. Now, we don't know for sure if Simon the sorcerer ever repented because the text ends. But early church history, I mentioned this in second service, but I didn't mention it in first service. They call Simon the sorcerer, also called Simon Magnus in early church history, the father of all Gnostic heresies. Okay, Gnosticism was basically, um, it comes from the Greek word gnosis. It starts with a G-G-N-O-S-I-S. And it it means knowledge. Uh, Basically, they thought that you could pursue knowledge to attain a level of godliness. They also believed that matter, all material things were corrupt. They were wicked. And only spiritual things were holy. So, Jesus, and this is where... First John addresses some of these things. Jesus couldn't have came in the flesh. He couldn't have came in the flesh because 
the flesh is wicked and God can't identify with the flesh. He can't put on human flesh. So what's funny is back during their day, people were arguing that Jesus was too holy. He was definitely God, but he was too holy. He was too perfect. He was God, but he wasn't in the flesh. Now what do people say? Yeah, Jesus came in the flesh, but he wasn't God. It's funny how that turned around a little bit. They had no problem believing that Jesus was God. Because they were around the people that witnessed him. Some of these people even witnessed him do these miracles. They had a problem believing that he actually was in the flesh. They believed he was like a phantom. Now they call Simon the sorcerer, the father of all Gnostic heresies, as I mentioned, because some early church historians um, and early church fathers basically uh, uh, tell us that he really started a movement and started causing a lot of damage in the church by spreading this false doctrine. Now, there's a lot of different thoughts and things about that, but that's all we'll mention for now. Acts chapter 8, verse 25. So it doesn't seem that, based on church history, it doesn't seem that Simon the sorcerer ever did truly repent. Acts chapter 8, verse 25. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So basically what the text is communicating is that... um, uh, Peter and John, they continued preaching in Samaria before they went back to Jerusalem. They took advantage of that opportunity and spread the gospel to the Samaritans because that was something that Jesus told them to do. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert think about this okay an angel of the lord comes to philip philip the evangelist that shared with all the samaritans and he tells him hey i want you to arise get up and go to a desert just get up from where you are yeah you got a lot of productive ministry we see the samaritans getting saved masses getting saved accepting the lord as their savior but i want you to go to the desert guess what's in the desert not typically people okay (laughs) So Philip's got to be wondering, okay, why, why, why is God calling me to go to the desert? But he doesn't question this calling. He doesn't ask, God, why are you calling me here? How am I going to minister to anyone there? There's no one that lives in that area. No. He just went. Has God ever asked you to go somewhere strange that didn't make sense? Did you listen? Did you go? Because the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. When God calls us to do something strange, do something weird. Now share the gospel with this atheist person that that, uh, has such a hard heart towards God. Or I want you to share the gospel with your neighbor. I want you to go in the middle of nowhere. And you might not think that there's anyone there, but there might be someone special that I want you to share the gospel with. We have an opportunity to respond in faith or bail because of doubt. See, we don't need to know why God is sending us or how God is sending us. We just need to know that God God is indeed sending us. That's all we have to know is that God is sending me. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know what. But I know that he is. 
So I'm going to go where he's sending me. This was Philip's mentality. It says in verse 27, So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Philip doesn't hesitate. He just goes with it. Immediate obedience. He wasn't asking questions. He just moved forward in faith. And this is part of the adventure of faith. We don't have to know all the answers all the time. We just got to know that God's calling us to do whatever he's calling us to do. This is who Philip was. Acts chapter 8 verse 28. So this Ethiopian eunuch of great authority was returning from worship in Jerusalem. And he's sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Okay, so Ethiopia, just some historical fun facts. Ethiopia used to be bigger that back then. It was a big empire back then than it is now. Uh, and we also see the Queen of Sheba, okay, was from Ethiopia. Remember the Queen of Sheba that sought Solomon in all his wisdom? And Solomon, in his wisdom, he actually led the Queen of Sheba to accept the God of Israel, okay? So thinking about that in uh, whatever is like probably a thousand years before this, um, 900, something like that. That probably gave the Ethiopians some Jewish roots, okay? Uh, so now we see some Ethiopians coming to Jerusalem to worship. This eunuch is there in Jerusalem for this specific worship, uh, for this specific purpose, the text says. So this eunuch, he was a noble man. He was the treasurer. And this is the man that God called Philip to minister to. He called Philip to the middle of nowhere in a desert to minister to one person. See, sometimes God calls us to specific places for specific people. For specific people. There are specific people that God wants us to meet. Where we're at in this church, where you live, wherever that is, where you go, God brings us to places for people. Why? Because God's more concerned with people than He has places. But He uses places to get us to talk to people and get the gospel out to people. Or maybe as an opportunity for them to get the gospel out to us or invest in us. And sometimes we feel like, hey, God, you're calling me to this strange place and I don't really understand. And yeah, you might have someone here for me, but I don't know who it is. And I haven't met that individual. Who am I supposed to be investing into? Who's supposed to be investing into me? I know you called me to disciple, but I don't know who to disciple. And I know you called me to seek discipleship, but I don't know who I should ask to disciple me. Sometimes it's just a matter of time before you find those people to be ministered to and engage in ministry to. Sometimes you got to seek them out. Sometimes you got to search them out. Sometimes you got to look for it. God's called me to this place for a specific reason. And I know he has many reasons for this, but one of the primary reasons is that God brought me to this place for specific people. It could even be for one individual. The Lord leaves the 99 to get the one. If he's willing to do it, don't assume that he's not going to put us in a position to do just that. You might be in running springs for one person. For one person. You might not even met that person yet. You might be struggling. When am I going to meet that person? I need that one good friend. I need that person to invest into. I need that person to invest into me. That Ethiopian eunuch might be right around the corner. 
Again, sometimes God just brings us right to them. Other times we've got to search them out. So this is the person that Philip was sent to. One person from leaving the masses, all these people getting saved, to go speak to one individual. So this Ethiopian eunuch, as I mentioned, he was in Jerusalem to worship. He was likely there for one of the feasts, okay? One of the seven, probably one of the three. We won't get into that, but he's there to worship specifically. So he's likely a proselyte, a Jewish convert. He could be an actual Jew. The Bible doesn't say he's a Gentile. So he's like, he's, he could be a Jew that was scattered to Ethiopia, but more than likely because of his position uh, with Queen Candace, he's likely a proselyte, um, uh, a Gentile that converted to Judaism. So he's coming back from his time of worship and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. The text continues in verse 29. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? So God, he opens this door for Philip. He says, this is the guy, the spirit. This is the one that I sent you to. He opens the door, but Philip still had to run through the door. And guess what? He didn't didn't just walk through it. He, He ran through it. There was an urgency. There was a desire. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Revelation 3, 7, tells us that Jesus opens doors that no one can shut and he shuts doors that no one can open. When the Lord opens doors for us, and we've got to make sure it's from the Lord, not just from man. When the Lord opens doors for us, we should run through those doors just as Philip does. And when he closes doors, don't try to kick them open. Philip, he took advantage of the opportunity that God had for him. He ran through the door. He talks to this man who's reading Isaiah the prophet out loud. So he has a scroll with him. He's reading the prophet Isaiah out loud. Because he has this scroll, uh, it tells us that he's likely very invested in his Jewish faith because scrolls were very costly. For him to purchase a scroll would show us that he really is trying to do this Judaism thing and Philip asks him an important question in verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? It's one thing to read the word. Isaiah, he's reading. The, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading the word. But Philip asks him if you understand the words. God doesn't just want us to hear the word. He wants us to understand his word. The fourth and final point, purpose to understand the gospel. Purpose to understand the gospel. It's so important for us to understand the word. Now, faith comes by hearing the word, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, but fruit comes from understanding the word. Let me show you. It's Matthew chapter 13, sorry. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. It's the parable of the sower. Jesus explains it in verse 23. And he says, but he who received the seed on the good ground, meaning the word of God penetrated a heart that was prepared. Okay, Is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. It's so crucial for us to understand the word. Why? I can't apply what I don't understand. I can't do anything if I don't understand the word of God. I can't do anything with it. 
So there's got to be a desire in us, not just to hear a message or read our devotions, but understand what we're reading. How often do you read your devotions and you come across something that you're like, dude, what is this? Like, what, is, what am I reading here? Do you take the time to try to figure it out? You ask the Lord, hey, give me some understanding. That prayer in Ephesians 1, enlighten the eyes of my understanding. Like, I want to know what you're communicating to me. I want to know what your word says because I have a heart to want to do what you're asking me to do. There's a desire to understand. There's going to be an act of engaging to understand the word. But we also have to pick up on one thing too. This Ethiopian eunuch, he's not saved yet. Okay, he's not saved yet. So he doesn't have the spirit. And we know the Bible teaches us that we have to have the spirit to understand spiritual things, specifically the Bible. Let me show you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 11, it says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words what, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. This cracks me up. When you have these liberal theologians that aren't saved trying to interpret the scripture. By definition, the scripture tells them you can't understand what's being communicated if you don't have the spirit of God. I'm studying, taking some classes right now on the side here and there. And some of the things that these guys say is like, what? There's no way. I know you're not saved if that's what you're communicating about the word of God. But why are you even trying to understand this thing if you don't have the spirit of the living God? It's the Bible says that you can't understand these things. And I get it. I've been there. Before I got saved, I remember the first time I opened up a Bible. First time in my life, I was 25. I opened up the Bible, like actually opened it to read. And I started reading. Okay, I'll start from the beginning. Genesis. Like, yeah, I don't know about this whole creation account thing. I get to um, Lot uh, when his daughters get him drunk and sleep with them. You know what I thought? What is this? What am I reading? What is this book about? Is like the Bible condoning this? Like, was this okay? So I talked to my sister. I'm like, I don't understand. I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm agreeing with this stuff. She said, hey, try the New Testament. Just start with Matthew. So I'm reading Matthew. Get to Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says, if you lust after a woman, be better to pluck out your eye. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What? Are you serious? Like, come on. That can't be real. But I wasn't saved yet. And then when I received the Lord, I began understanding the scripture better. And it didn't just come all of a sudden. I have the spirit and I, I became a theologian. Okay. And I understand all these difficult texts. No, it took time. But what the spirit did in my life was help me to trust the word that I can trust God and, and I can trust Jesus. And Jesus, he teaches out of the Old Testament. So I can trust the Old Testament. I can trust the New Testament. I can put my faith in the word of God. And if there's something that I don't understand, it's because I have a lack of understanding. So I'm going to seek out some more understanding. The Ethiopian eunuch, he doesn't understand what he's reading because he's not saved. But he also needs help from Philip. Look what he says, Acts chapter 8, verse 31. 
And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. See what the Ethiopian eunuch did in humility? He says, I I need someone to guide me in the scriptures. I need help understanding these things. Now, this is the role of a teacher to give understanding to the word of God. And not everybody has the gift of teaching. We are all are called to understand the Bible on some level and seek out understanding. But the gift of teaching is a specific spiritual gift that the Lord uh, gives people. So this Ethiopian eunuch, he pursues understanding by asking Philip, who is a great communicator of the word. Hey, hey, hey what am I reading here? He had to seek out understanding. If we don't know something. We should seek it out. Ask someone. Look it up. Pray. First and foremost, pray and ask God, hey, what are you trying to communicate here? The text goes on, Acts chapter 8, verse 32. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth and his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? What is he reading? He's reading Isaiah chapter 53. How convenient, right? If you've read Isaiah chapter 53, it's a perfect picture of Jesus. Now, um, Jews have different interpretations of this specific chapter. Uh, a lot of rabbis just avoid it altogether. Uh, some, when they do teach it, they say that it's Israel. That uh, Israel is suffering for the sins of the world. And uh, they're basically bearing the weight of sin so that... Uh, the rest of the people can be forgiven. Uh, some believe that Isaiah is talking about himself. And then there's others that actually believe this is a reference to the Messiah. It's just not Jesus. But if you read it, it's so, so Jesus. It's so obvious. So this is a perfect setup uh, by God to have this Ethiopian eunuch reading this text. Because remember, the New Testament isn't written yet. It's not written yet. In fact, probably nothing was written yet at this time. We don't know for sure, but it was probably not until uh, several years later that things actually started being written down, the inspired scriptures, which we'll get into uh, when we get into the other books of the Bible. Acts chapter 8, verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Sorry, look at verse 35, forget that. I forgot that one. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So then the Ethiopian eunuch, he asks about baptism. Then in verse 37, it says, you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. So Philip starts on common ground. Okay, This is what this guy is reading. This is what he's focusing on. This is what he's engaged with. Let me take what God's already presented to me and, and share the gospel from there. This is so tactful. This is that gift of evangelism. Once again, he's using what God puts right in front of him. Just so happened to be Isaiah chapter 53. So this Ethiopian eunuch, he responds in faith. Philip says, if you really believe in your heart that Jesus is the son of God, then I'll baptize you. I wonder if Philip's thinking like back to Simon the sorcerer. He's like, uh, I don't know if that guy actually believed in his heart. We don't know for sure. 
But then this man gets baptized. Now, was it the baptism that solidified his salvation? We don't necessarily have to get baptized to be saved. We see baptism is an act of obedience. The Lord calls us to do it. But a great example is the thief on the cross, right? You didn't get baptized. Jesus said, I said hey, you're going uh, to spend eternity with me in paradise. So baptism isn't essential for salvation, but it is an act of obedience. Basically what it's declaring uh, is that I've experienced this inward transformation. It's a, uh, uh, an external act that points back to an internal change of the heart. Acts chapter 8 verse 39 Now, when they had, uh, now when they came out out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. It says that this Ethiopian eunuch, after he received the Lord, after he got baptized, he went away rejoicing. Now think about this, the difference between Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch. Simon the sorcerer, he sees the Holy Spirit come upon people and he says, I want that power. What else can the gospel give me? What does the gospel have to offer to me? He's not content with just the salvation that comes through the gospel. On the other hand, the Ethiopian eunuch, he rejoices. He recognized that the gospel gave him everything he needs. The gospel gave him everything he needs. He doesn't need any more. He's content in his salvation. We also see in church history that the Coptic Christians that are being persecuted in Egypt that, um, that, that Muslims are killing on a regular basis, they attribute the gospel being presented to their descendants through this man, through the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, so through history, we see that this Ethiopian eunuch, he continued to spread his faith. Not only does he have joy in his salvation, but he's spreading that joy to others. That is evidence of salvation. Not that that means matter of fact for sure, but we see evidence in the Ethiopian's life where we don't see evidence in Simon the sorcerer's life, if we truly believe the gospel, we're going to respond with joy. And not just like a one moment joy, like there should be the fruit of the Spirit. There should be love. There should be joy in our life. There should be peace. There should be all these different things. There should be a desire to share the gospel. There should be a desire to spread the gospel just as we see through history with this Ethiopian eunuch. It's not about what God can offer me. Give me more. Salvation isn't enough. What power or position or prominence can you deliver to me? The Ethiopian eunuch was content in his salvation alone. See, true faith is of the heart, but will be revealed in the way that we live our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the text today. And... uh, Lord, when we study things like Simon the Sorcerer and some of the things that you say about certain people um, professing your name, but not actually having a saving faith in you. Lord, I pray that those of us that truly have that saving faith who would be confident in our salvation, 
You don't want us to question our salvation. That's what hope is, a confident expectation in the work that you performed for us on the cross through your death, burial, and resurrection, but also also where we're going to spend eternity. God, but I pray if there's any hesitancy, if there's anyone that looks at that and identifies with Simon the sorcerer and, and maybe thinks that their faith might be off, that it wasn't sincere, that there was the profession, but there wasn't the change of heart. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction, Lord, that um, they wouldn't uh, leave today without repenting and asking you for forgiveness, Lord. So we thank you for the gospel. We rejoice in it. Help us to understand it better. In Jesus' name, amen.